Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Vineyard. Welcome back to the Vineyard, if you've been here before. Um, today, the message is called The Supremacy of Christ, but I want you to ignore the wordy title for a minute. So when I was first kind of on the cusp of becoming a Jesus follower, um, that was probably about eight years ago, there was really one important question for me that needed to be answered. And the question that needed to be answered wasn't, is God real? And it wasn't, you know, what happens to us after we die? It wasn't, how can I live a happy life? The question that needed to be answered for me to, to consider whether or not it was really worth it for me to change the course of my life and live according to what this Jesus guy said was, is Jesus who he really said he was, or is he someone else? I think that's the most important, the most fundamental question that we have to answer as Christians, as believers. Because, you know, is God real? Is God not real? That's, you know, it's kind of, I mean, that's really like basic stuff. We've got to move beyond those questions and ask ourselves, is Jesus who he really said he is? Or is he someone else? And so that's kind of what I want to talk to you about today. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to keep rolling. So, Holy Spirit, we just welcome your presence here this morning. And uh, Spirit of Jesus, would you come and, and just wash over us and be present with us. I invite you to just come and speak to us, even as I'm speaking, uh, through worship and through ministry. God, we, we want your presence, and we want you to just flow freely in this place. So, Lord, we, we invite you, Spirit of Revelation, to come and open our eyes, open our minds to something new about the beauty of the sun. In your name, amen. Okay, so... We all have a way that we see the world, a lens, a framework for how we kind of place ourselves in all of this, and we call it a worldview. We often refer to it here at the Vineyard as a worldview. And so, you know, it comes to be as a result of what we want out of life, I think is ultimately what shapes our worldview. A lot of times people will say, you know, that it comes about because of uh, where we're raised or how we're raised or what our parents believe or what the people around us believe. But ultimately, I think the thing that drives our worldview is what we want to get out of life. And so, um, you know, we have, we have an end in life that we're trying to achieve, and it kind of dictates how we'll conduct ourselves with respect to other people uh, and, and with respect to the world. And I don't know what that thing is for you. I don't know what that thing is for you that you're trying to accomplish with your life, but I suspect that uh, before Jesus comes into a person's life, you know, whether that's the case for you or not, uh, we are kind of oriented toward one thing or another. And so it could be wealth, it could be status or power or control. Um, maybe your motivation seems a little more positive. You know, it could be something like health or wholeness or kindness, right? I mean, we hear people say that they're living for those things all the time. And a lot of the things that I just named kind of have an assumption attached to them about how good or bad they are. And uh, your motivation could be more morally neutral, right? Some of those things seemed good or bad, but your motivation could just be, you know, I want to be like the best at my trade. I know a lot of craftspeople and makers in my life, you know, carpenters and barbers and people who, who like do things, make things with their hands. And so maybe your end is just, I want to be as good as I can at what I do. Or maybe the end for your life is just, I, I want to keep quiet and keep to myself and live a life that, you know, I'm not entangled with other people and other people don't bother me and I just kind of have my own life and I live it. 
Have you heard people talk like that before? Okay. So Bob Dylan said it like this. You may be a preacher with your spiritual pride. You may be a city councilman taking bribes on the side. You may be working in a barber shop. You may know how to cut hair. You may be somebody's mistress, maybe somebody's heir, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And he wrote that song uh, after Bible study when he was going to the vineyard in Anaheim, California, where he became a Christian in the late 70s. A really cool part of Bob Dylan's story is that he intersects with the vineyard for a good portion of his life. And so that's where he gets saved and he starts writing uh, gospel music. And so what's that got to do with anything? The question that I, I ask myself, this is Jesus really who he said he was? It's similar to the question that Dylan asks. And so, you know, who will you serve? Who will you worship? It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, as Dylan says, uh, but you got to serve somebody. And that might sound abrasive to the post-postmodern ear. And even when I say that out loud, because of the culture that I've been raised in and the culture that I've spent time in, even this idea that we're always worshiping something is a little bit like counter to what I'm surrounded by all the time, right? I mean, it sounds a little weird. You don't really hear people talk like that all the time. Um, some people say, I don't worship anything or anyone. They say, I, I don't worship at all. And if you're one of those people, I hate to break it to you, but you are, in fact, a worshiper. You may be a worshiper of security. You might be a worshiper of law and order. You might worship political power. Maybe you worship inclusivity or diversity or self-expression or authenticity. You know, all these things uh, are, are ideas, but they're not good foundations. They're not firm foundations for ideology. And people worship these things. They build ideologies around these things. They build rival religions around these things that challenge the supremacy of Jesus Christ in our lives. And so whatever it is, there's something that you worship. Whatever it is, there's something that you worship. It could be several things that are forming you. Formation is an important word in the Christian faith uh, because what, what are we being formed by? Most of the message of Jesus, most of what he's talking about has to do with formation. So are you being formed by, you know, YouTube videos? It has an autoplay feature for a reason, right? There's an algorithm and it's forming you and it keeps going and going and going and going unless you tell it to stop. Maybe it's social media, right? Maybe you're being formed by social media because, you know, the, the endless scroll captivates us and it keeps showing us things that it knows will, will just prick our imaginations and will, will stir us up and make us feel something. There's people that are really good at that, that have designed those things. Uh, it could just be unhealthy rhythms of life that you're addicted to that are forming you. There, it, it, could be, it could be things that you maybe, you're like, I, I don't want to be this way, but I am this way, and they keep doing it. And you're praying, you know, Holy Spirit, change my motivations, change the way that I'm living, but nothing's happening. Maybe you're being formed by entertainment, right? Entertainment forms us. There's a huge entertainment industry that exists to captivate our eyeballs and keep us watching. Uh, Jesus, unfortunately, this is the conundrum that we're in, asks for our sole unfettered allegiance. He doesn't like to share. He doesn't like to share with those things. So this is much easier said than done. 
following Jesus, figuring out if Jesus is who he really said he is. So all this talk about worldview and who you'll serve brings me back to this original question, is Jesus who he really said he was? And the Apostle Paul seeks to answer this question for us in the first chapter of the letter that he writes to the Colossians from prison. So a few weeks ago, I talked about the Colossians a little bit. If you'll remember, there's this guy, uh, his name is uh, Epaphras, and he starts the Colossian church. So he takes the gospel from presumably like hearing Paul preach somewhere, and he takes it back to his city. And he starts this church. And so at the time that Paul's writing this letter, the Colossian church is about 10 years old. So it's about as old as our church is. And so Paul is writing this letter to this church to kind of like serve them and teach them up and kind of help them sort of stay the course. And so the Colossians are a lot like us. They're living under a powerful empire and they're seeking to form themselves. There's that word formation. They're seeking to form themselves into an alternative community of followers of the way, right? Before it was a cult, that was what we called the, the followers of Jesus. They were followers of the way. Early Christians referred to them as that, themselves as that. And so uh, they're following the way of Christ. And so in Paul's words, in this letter, they're in danger of being swayed by impressive arguments, the rival religion of human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of the world rather than Christ. So what does that mean? What is human tradition and the elemental forces of the world? All that means is just all the stuff that I just listed. Money and power and status and entertainment and, you know, all those things, right? Those are the, the arguments that are swaying us back and forth and swaying us out of the love of Jesus. And so the antidote to that poison is what he says at the beginning of this letter. So I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we'll kind of break it down in chunks. So Colossians 1 13 to 20, if you'd like to follow along in your devices. So it says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So Paul's talking about God here at the beginning. Uh, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So there's a lot there. There's a lot there. Like, theologically, there's a lot there from a cultural perspective to understand. And so we're just going to kind of try to take our time through this. But we need to be formed by these sayings. So what I'm saying about formation, like we should be spending more time in these sayings about Jesus than we should be in any other thing that's forming us. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to confess to you from the front because this is the conversation that I have with pastor friends of mine. And this is honestly why I think so many pastors in this time feel so defeated 
and why so many of us feel like hanging it up from time to time is because, you know, when we come in here and we spend two hours together on Sunday, that's great. That's a great thing. But formation happens over time. And there are so many things that are vying for everyone's attention in this room that it's really easy for pastors to say to themselves, for worship pastors to say to themselves, like we come in here and we talk for half an hour and we sing some songs, but two hours out of your whole week is not much. And what's actually forming you is what you do with the rest of your week. So we can use this time to sort of like reorient ourselves and chart a course a little bit, but it's a decision that each of us have to make about what we're going to be formed by after we walk out of here. And, and so I know that nobody here does this, but people leave the church and then choose to be formed by the elemental spirits of the world. People leave the church and choose to be formed by Facebook. People leave the church and choose to be formed by YouTube. People leave the church and choose to be formed by cable news because they are vying for your attention 24-7. And I'm not because I can't talk to you 24-7, right? Now, the Holy Spirit is vying for your attention 24-7, but in a very different way, in a way that actually requires that you mobilize your will to opt out of what the elemental spirits of the world are directing you to do with your eyeballs and with your time and with your brain power. It's very, very important. So we can say that we are people of the spirit, but this is a little bit of a, a tangent, but just hang with me, okay? So in Genesis, when the, when the creation account is told in Genesis, it says that the spirit was hovering over the waters, right? There's a hovering presence of the Holy Spirit. And then God speaks a word into the presence of the Holy Spirit, and the world is formed by that. Now, what I would say is that that is a form of God mobilizing his will into the hovering presence of the Holy Spirit. And so if we say things and we sing things and we pray things like, God, change me. God, change my desires. God, make me a person after your heart. But we never mobilize our will into the hovering presence of the Holy Spirit on our lives we will not be changed because he's not going to just usurp your, your free will, your authority, and just make you into something different. It works the same way as creation. So Holy Spirit is hovering on you. He's hovering on your person. He's hovering on your mind and your eyeballs. But if you just pray and sing, Holy Spirit, change me, make me something different, and you never mobilize your will against the 24-hour news cycle, or you never mobilize your will against scrolling on Facebook for hours and hours and hours a day, that's still the thing that you're going to be formed by. Make sense? Okay, cool. Now I can keep going. Um, so the reason that I called this message the supremacy of Christ, this is a theological idea that was introduced by one of my favorite church fathers. His name was Tertullian, and he lived in the second century. He's actually the guy that kind of invented this idea of the Trinity. So when we talk about the Trinity and uh, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and being one and being equal but being three distinct persons and that confusing 
idea that we're still trying to wrap our minds around, he, he kind of cooked that up. So he's the one that went through the scriptures and said, you know, this is, I think this is how this works. Okay? And so he also introduced this idea, this interpretation of these scriptures and some other scriptures called the supremacy of Christ. And so this is something that he said, you know, I think this is what Paul is saying. I think what he's saying is that Jesus Christ wasn't just a guy, and he wasn't just God visiting us for a while as a human and then God going back where he came from. But this Jesus guy has actually always been, like from before the foundations of the earth, from before. And so, so what he's doing is he's actually kind of correcting the theology of the early church because they sort of believed like, okay, Jesus was this representation of God and he was here for a while. But then when he left, it's just kind of like God again. Like we sort of pick up where the Old Testament left off. And so now there's just... God and Tertullian said, No, Jesus is supreme as the Father is supreme, as the Holy Spirit is supreme. Does that make sense? It's a complicated theological thing, but it's important for us to understand to read these verses properly. So, Christ is supreme in all areas of our lives. The mission of the Christian life is to have all parts of our life fully submitted to Jesus. For Jesus to be supreme in all areas of our lives. And, and this envelops our whole life. No part is left unaffected. It, it affects your, your waking and your sleeping. It affects your work. It affects your leisure. It affects your marriage. It affects your singleness. That's important, right? It affects your family. It affects your having or not having children. And, and this is something that, you know, I was even thinking about as Pida shared. Like the church neglects singles and the church neglects families without children because Jesus dwells in that space. He dwells in your spiritual parenthood. He dwells in your, your singleness. It's important. And so there's so much in this passage, and I just want to go through and kind of look at each of these claims that Paul makes throughout, because I think that they're important as it pertains to how we conduct ourselves before other people and before God. So the first thing that he says is, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So, the domain of darkness is the domain of the enemy of your soul, the domain of the adversary, the accuser, right? And, you know, what, okay, that's fine, we can say that, but what is this domain of darkness? Uh, in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul, the same guy, refers to the Satan as the god of this world and the god of this age. And so, what's happening here? in Colossians is he's saying we've been transferred from the domain of the world into the domain of the kingdom. So when you hear Paul say things like we're in the world but not of the world and those things that are like hard to understand, what he's saying is that there, a transfer has occurred, a citizenship transfer has occurred from your citizenship in the world to your citizenship in the kingdom of Jesus. And so, you know, it's one thing to understand what that means but it's a different thing entirely to understand what it means for how we live our lives. And so what does it practically mean to be transferred from one kingdom to the other kingdom? I would suggest that it's complete, 
It's all-encompassing because the kingdom of Jesus is supreme. He's not sharing the pedestal. So there's a little anecdote from the early church that I think is emblematic of what it means to have your citizenship transferred to another kingdom. It was expected that good Roman citizens in the first few centuries AD would do their civic duty and they would pay their respects to the empire. And so at most city gates, there was a bust of Caesar that would sit there on a little thing. It was there. And there was a little bowl of incense in front of the, the, the bust. And so when you would enter the city gates, it was expected that you would just like put a little pinch of incense into the bowl and you would bow to the bust of Caesar. And, you know, it, it's really no big deal. It's really no big deal unless you didn't do it. It's no big deal. It's just something that we all do. We don't even talk about it unless you don't do it. So if you don't do it, then you get thrown in prison and you get beaten and you get mocked and, and Christianity becomes this persecuted faith because what happened was these early Christians had a deep understanding of what it meant to be loyal to the kingdom of Jesus to the extent that they were not sharing their loyalties with any other kingdom. And so their allegiance was pledged to the kingdom of Jesus alone, and any other affection was seen as incompatible with their commitment to the kingdom. They had been transferred out of the society of Caesar is Lord and into the society of Jesus is Lord. The reason that Jesus is Lord was the confession of the early church is because it was a very clear statement. Because the popular thing in Rome, the thing that was on their money and the thing that everybody confessed publicly was that Caesar is Lord. And so when the early believers chose to confess Jesus is Lord, the implication was Caesar is not. There's one. There's one Lord. So we're formed by the things that we give our attention to because Caesar worship was an overt part of Roman society. And it formed people. It formed people into this nonchalant, I'll put a little incense in the bowl, I'll bow to the bust, and I'll keep going, right? Because it's what they were part of. It's what they were steeped in. And so they had no other way of knowing. They had no other way of living because that was appropriate for them. And so we'll be formed into the things that we spend time with. You know, Complaining and rudeness and um, outrage sour our witness as Jesus followers. And we live in a society of complaining and rudeness and outrage. And we have got to opt out of the, the civic religion of complaining and rudeness and outrage. Yeah. It doesn't work for us. It doesn't work. It sours our witness as Jesus followers because people see that and they say, oh, these are just more Caesar is Lord people because we act like the Caesar is Lord people. We need to opt out of outrage, of rudeness, of complaining. So when Paul talks about the kingdom... In this passage, he does something interesting. 
See, when Jesus talks about the kingdom, he refers to it as the kingdom of God. He refers to it as the kingdom of heaven. Right? Do we remember Jesus saying those things? He tells parables and he'll say the kingdom of God is like this or the kingdom of heaven is like this. And so Paul actually takes that language and he applies it to Jesus himself for the first time. It's really interesting. So he doesn't refer to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, but Paul actually refers to the kingdom of his beloved son. Interesting, right? So, so it goes from you know, God the Father, and then Jesus is some guy, maybe a prophet, definitely a healer, a great teacher, to Paul refers to the kingdom of his beloved son. So now we have this Trinitarian idea coming into play, coming into focus, right? That this is not just the kingdom of God the Father. This is the kingdom of his beloved son. And so the rest of the passage is actually about why he's referring to the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Jesus interchangeably. So the whole point of the passage from here on out is to convey that God is like Jesus. God is like Jesus. His personality is like Jesus. His desires are like Jesus. The way that he approaches you and I is like Jesus. Jesus does nothing under the banner of the kingdom unless he sees the Father doing it. Because he said that in his earthly ministry. And then when Jesus ascends and we have the kingdom of Jesus, it's the same thing. right? It's the same thing. Jesus is doing nothing unless he sees the Father doing it. And so we say all the time that humans are created in the image of God, but do we really understand what that means? I want to I challenge you a little bit. Like if somebody came to you and said, Kevin, what do you mean when you say that humans are created in the image of God? Would you have a really good, like concise way to explain that to, to a stranger in two or three sentences? It's kind of a weird concept, right? So, you know, we, like the early church, kind of have an image of God problem. We have an impression of the image of God that's formed by pagan myths. It's formed by our own fear. It's formed by, you know, things that maybe not so great teachers have taught us in the past. Uh, it's, it's formed by an obscured Old Testament view of the Father, right? It's important here that Paul points out that this is, uh, again, like, like John's gospel says, this is the, uh, the image of the invisible God, the one that no one has ever seen. John says that in his gospel. No one's ever seen him. Um, and so, you know, let's, let's keep, keep going. So it says, he, this is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So in other words, Jesus is the perfect image of God who's never before been seen, right? Just like John says. Paul goes further to say that Jesus was intimately involved in the creation of the world and the creation of the spiritual realm. This is a pretty new idea at the time that he's saying this. Because before now, you know, Jewish monotheism was very confused by this idea of the Trinity. And so it was strange to say that Jesus also was part of that, 
that he was also part of the creation of the world, that he was also there from the beginning. And, uh, you know, so Jesus, he's emphasizing that Jesus existed before anything else, and he is the stitch that holds together the fabric of the entire cosmos. Big claim, right? Big claim, especially when you're talking to people who have a worldview that is not friendly to this. Jews and Gentiles alike have a worldview that is not friendly to this idea that Jesus has been around since the beginning and he is the singular stitch that holds together the entire fabric of the cosmos. But that's how important Jesus is, Paul says. And so, you know, people will argue against the first claim that I made that we can't share our allegiance to kingdoms because it says right here that, you know, thrones, rulers, dominions, authorities were all created through him and for him. But then the next sentence says he is before all things. He's before all those rulers and dominions and kingdoms and authorities. So yes, they were created through him and by him and for him, but he's before them. And so do we want to worship the thing that comes after? Or do we want to worship the thing that came before? That's the question that we have to answer. So the word firstborn carries some serious implications in this text because in the ancient world, firstborn didn't just mean your first child. It meant that Jesus was favored over all creation. He was preferred. And not only was he the first, but he was the greatest. Oldest children, are you listening to this? <laughs> not only was he the first, but he was the greatest. And so, obviously that's not what that means, but nothing in your life or my life can supersede the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things. No influence, no ideology, Certainly no idol or thing to be worshipped. And so returning to our original question, if Jesus is who he said he is, and if, if Jesus is who Paul said he is, that's something that deserves our attention, right? Now, the way that we figure this out, I'm just going to spoil it for you. I'm not going to answer that question for you because I had to answer it for myself, and everybody that I know that has a genuine faith in Jesus Christ had to answer that question for themselves at one point or another. And so I'm not going to present to you a persuasive argument for Jesus being who he said he was and who Paul said he was because the Holy Spirit will reveal that in due time. Persuasive arguments aren't what's going to get us there. But if it's true... Our starting point, our example, our ethic, our morality is defined by the worldview and the behavior of Jesus Christ and no one else. Because he is the image of the invisible God. He's the perfect explanation of all these things that we're wrestling with. Right? He has revealed it in completeness because he was before anything else. And so I've recently been, become friends with this guy who was raised Jehovah's Witness, and he deconstructed the faith that he inherited from his parents as a Jehovah's Witness. And he's in a place where he's like kind of forming something new. So we started these conversations. He found out that I was a pastor, and so he just started asking me questions about stuff. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm just going to answer your questions with questions because that's how Jesus did it. And so we were talking about this, and he said something to me that I know a lot of people struggle with, and I think probably a lot of us in this room have struggled with before. He said, I think Jesus is awesome, and I know that when I read or I hear people talking about Jesus, he seems like somebody I could really trust. But when I think about God, I'm not sure what to make of him. 
When I think about God the Father, I'm not sure what to make of him. And have you ever felt that way? Some yes, some no? Okay, so uh, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so it's the church's responsibility to represent God the Father well by explaining this to people. Right? And that's what Paul's doing in this letter. He's trying to explain to people that, look, you may have some perception of what you think God is like because you live in this Roman culture, and so you might think that God is like Caesar. You might think that God is like one of the Roman gods. You might think that God is like your own father. That one hits, right? But in fact, God is like Jesus Christ, who has been since before the beginning. And so, you know, we, uh, we have not done this well historically, but Jesus carries and presents himself with so much grace and kindness, especially to those who are not yet believers. I made this point a few weeks ago, but the people that Jesus speaks harshly to are people who have power and are wielding it to oppress others and people who are his very dear friends. Those are the people that he, he speaks like the red-hot, scathing words to that we hear. You know, when he tells the story, like, you know, many will uh, arrive at the end or whatever, and they'll say, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, I never knew you, right? He's saying that to somebody in power. And he says to his, like his best friend, Peter, get behind me, Satan, right? But he doesn't say that stuff to strangers. So the final portion of this passage, I'm just going to leave that hang. The final portion of this passage speaks to the ultimate purpose of Jesus' life and his sacrifice. So it says, he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on, he whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so in saying that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, Paul is referring to the resurrection of Jesus. That's what he means when he says the firstborn from the dead. So the reason for the resurrection that's the rest of this, what he's explaining for the rest of this passage. He, he claims that it's so Jesus might be preeminent in all things. What does that mean? Again, supreme. That Jesus might be supreme in all things. He comes first and does not share first place. Unrivaled, unsurpassed, unmatched, unequaled. And why is this? It's because the fullness of God dwells in him. So now he's kind of bringing us full circle and describing why this is the case. So it's not just because Jesus is a new guy who shows up on the scene, he's a great prophet, teacher, healer, whatever. It's because the fullness of God was pleased to dwell within him. Yeah? And so any part of us that thinks that some other picture of God that we have is like higher or more cosmic or more overarching than the person of Jesus, and we say, well, Jesus was relating, you know, as, as well as he could as God in a human form. The truth is that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell within him. So we can't excuse away anything that Jesus did or said as, like, not the full picture of God, because it's the fullness of God dwelling in Jesus. So, he makes the most critical point of all, that the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus for the purpose 
of reconciling all things to himself, physical and spiritual, making peace by the blood of the cross. So what Paul is saying here is, uh, is intended to put to death this concept that God is an angry God who is in the business of punishment and war waging. First, second, and third John deal with that. So go read them if you're curious. The infinite God fits inside Jesus and the entire purpose for this Messiah project from the beginning of time was to give God the opportunity to come here and offer himself for the reconciliation of all things, physical and spiritual, to himself. And so sometimes we use language that almost makes it seem like Jesus on the cross wasn't God. Because we talk about like, God killed Jesus on the cross, or like the, the part in Isaiah where it says, you know, he was pleased to crush him, right? And, and all that is language that we have to understand through the lens of Jesus was fully God. The fullness of the deity of God is dwelling in Jesus on the cross. The fullness of the deity of God is dwelling in Jesus for the purpose of coming here and fixing it himself, we talk about that. That's the thing that makes following Jesus distinct from every other religion on the buffet. Because God comes here to fix it himself. The whole point is about getting God to us and not getting us to God. And so that exposes something that I think is fundamentally important about God's nature. God does what he does in order to get close to the problem. He's not a God who puts distance between himself and, and what needs fixed. Uh, Jesus is intimately involved, like as intimately involved as possible. Not far off. Not far off. There's a reason that radical, the, the stories of radical forgiveness capture our imaginations and capture our attention. And it's because it's what we're wired for. That's what it means for humans to be created in the image of God. Humans embody the radical forgiveness of God made complete in the person of Jesus Christ, in my opinion. It's what we're wired for. It's the purpose of all humankind to be doing this work of reconciling all things to God. And so School of Kingdom Ministry, the whole purpose of School of Kingdom Ministry, right? We have this deep unit where we talk about identity for six weeks. And the whole reason for the identity message is because we ourselves are, by the Holy Spirit, being reconciled to God, our, our personal selves. And the whole reason that we talk about kingdom theology and the whole reason that we talk about healing and the gifts of the Holy Spirit is because all of those things were designed for the building up of the church, who in turn is doing the work in the world of reconciling all things to God. So Shusaku Endo was a Japanese author who wrote theological fiction, and he's become, quickly become one of my favorite authors. Um, my favorite book of his, which is also the most popular book of his, it's called Silence, and it was the, feature of, uh, uh, the subject of a feature film in 2016 that Martin Scorsese directed, and it's based on a true story about two Jesuit priests. And so uh, the novel, which came out in 1966 and is way better than the movie, focuses on these two Portuguese Jesuit priests who arrive in Japan in 1639. 
said the gospel had been brought to Japan a couple hundred years earlier, and, and there was like, it was gaining traction. But then there was a new uh, emperor of Japan who was hostile to the Christians, and so he's persecuting the Christians in the early to mid uh, 17th century. And so the Japanese monarchy is persecuting these Christians, and the story is told through the lens of um, one of the priests journaling throughout the story. So Sebastio Rodriguez uh, is, is the priest, and it's a beautiful representation of the co-suffering love of Jesus. So I would encourage you um, to read the book and to watch the movie. The movie is a little violent because obviously people are being tortured, but it's a great movie. The authorities would torture and kill other Christians as the priests looked on. So they basically had these priests, they were for- forcing them to, to watch the torture of the believers that they came to teach and encourage. And, um, you know, the, the method involved was that they would basically hang people upside down until they died. And so uh, Rodriguez's journal kind of depicts this struggle. The, the, the issue was uh, that the priests had to renounce their faith in order to end the suffering of their flock. So they're watching dozens and dozens and dozens of people be tortured. And um, the story actually takes kind of a profound twist that I didn't understand uh, until, you know, I kind of thought about it and meditated on it a little bit, and I didn't, I didn't expect it. But the priest is struggling over whether it's self-centered and unmerciful to refuse to recant when doing so would end the suffering of these dozens and dozens of believers that he came to serve. And so he's going through this, you know, is, is it worth basically... My, my own image, my own, you know, making the right decision to cause these people to suffer and die in front of me and for me to have to watch it happen. This is a very difficult and a traumatic thing. And so at this climactic moment, Rodriguez uh, hears the moans of the people who, who have recanted, but uh, he has to remain in the pit. So there's a pit where they would do this until he steps on an image of Christ. So they had a, like a, a picture, a painting. There's a Japanese word for it. I can't remember what it is. And they would put it on the ground, and they basically told him, if you step on this image, uh, we'll release these people that we're, that we're torturing. And so he's, he's considering this, and as he looks at it, Christ, by the Holy Spirit, breaks his silence in the story. And he says, this is what shocked me. He says, you may trample. I, more than any, know the pain in your foot. You may trample. It was to be trampled on by men that I was born into this world. It was to share men's pain that I carried my cross. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Now, of course, I don't want to preach this story like it's scripture because it's a... (laughs) It's a historical fiction, right? But there's something powerful in that. There's something powerful in the voice of the Holy Spirit breaking through to this priest and explaining to him, my purpose was to come here to be trampled, to reconcile people to myself, spirit, soul, and body. And, and I think that's the message, and I encourage each of you to consider this deeply so the worship team can come back up, but... If you do not yet consider yourself a follower of Jesus, the question is not, is God real? Or where do I go when I die? The question is, is Jesus who he said he was? 
Because if he was, that's really, really something that's worth our investigation. It's worth us asking that question and allowing the Holy Spirit to reveal it to us. And, and Jesus' followers in the room, I, I want to ask you, is Jesus, and for me the answer, just preface this, is no to some of these questions. Is Jesus reigning supreme over your family? Is he reigning supreme over your career? Is he su reigning supreme over the things that you're spending your time on and being formed by? Is he reigning supreme over your habits? Is he reigning supreme over your politics? And are we allowing ourselves to be formed by him? So I'm going to pray, and then we'll worship. So Jesus, you are so wonderful. You are so wonderful that we just, we, we confess, we pray this, what's being sung around the throne in heaven, that holy, holy, holy is the lamb that was slain. And so, God, right now, we, we just submit to you. We submit to you afresh. We submit to you once more. And we just invite you to come and be the Lord of every area of our lives. So we confess that you are supreme. You are supreme. There is not one thing that we desire to hold over you or to, to put you behind. And we take these words seriously. We take this passage seriously, Jesus, that you would be the Lord of our habits, the Lord of our desires, the Lord of our, of our minds, the Lord of our eyes. And Holy Spirit, as we worship this morning, would you just come over us with truth? Would you come over us with, uh, with just your presence to forge this identity in Jesus inside of us in a way that cannot be shaken this week when we walk out of this room? We want more of you, Lord. Amen.